Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan with another episode of the Influence Continuum. I'm very excited today to share with you someone that I've admired and respected and followed for many years now. Dr. Bandy X. Lee is a forensic psychiatrist. She's a medical doctor. She also has a Master's of Divinity. She's an internationally recognized expert on violence and taught at Yale School of Medicine and Yale Law School for many, many years. Uh, in addition to her authoritative textbook, she's published more than 100 peer-reviewed articles and chapters, 17 edited scholarly books and journal special issues, more than 300 op-eds and outlets like The Guardian, New York Times, Boston Globe, The Independent, and Politico. She's assembled fellow pr professionals for the New York Times bestseller, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, 37 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President, Making History and Predicting the Events of January 6, 2021, through her profile of a nation Trump's Mind, America's Soul, which I have, but I couldn't find Bandy before this, so I can't hold it up, but people will check it out in our blog and online. And you created and are president of the World Mental Health Coalition, which I am a proud member of. And um, my goodness, so I've heard, met you in person. You've spoken at my forensic think tank at Harvard Medical School. You've, you've just been courageously saying, hey, I'm an expert on dangerousness. This is my profession. We have a duty to warn. And your book was a bestseller. You got a lot of publicity and then things shut down. And I don't know how many of my listeners have been following you as closely as I continue to, but wow, you called it. I can say I called it too, but from a different angle. Absolutely. Um, you and, did. And here we are. It's 2023. And now recently Georgia just filed RICO conspiracy and racketeering charges. So there's so much to talk about, but uh, I'm going to just introduce, I, I introduced you now. And I want you to tell my listeners as a forensic psychiatrist, who knows dangerousness, your reflections. <laughs> where are we now and where have we come and what do we need to know and do? This is our hour, please. Thank you. Thank you for that kind introduction. Of course, Dr. Hassan, you've been certainly a part of the uh, movement of mental health professionals who have been trying to alert the public and have uh, foretold uh, just about everything that has happened since uh, the election of Donald Trump. And so, yes, it began with uh, his election that, uh, of course, earlier on in the campaign, we started... 2016 election. That's right. right. Uh, we became concerned. But when he was elected, uh, my friend and old colleague, Judith Herman, uh, wrote to President Obama at the time that this new president-elect needed a neuropsychiatric evaluation. And after that, we got in touch. And um, 
my phone was ringing off the hook the morning after election because people were saying, uh, well, as a violence expert, this was something that uh, we needed to speak about. And, uh, and I agree, I have no regrets about speaking up. Um, since early 2017, those of us who were not previously in the public eye or were involved in politics came out believing that we had uh, a professional duty, uh, a duty as citizens to share the knowledge that we had um, altogether shared uh, the, the close to 100 years of scientific research and uh, decades of clinical experience and the knowledge that we had all together that we had a duty to warn the public and inform it so that it could protect itself. And I believe that it's precisely because our voice was central and most important that it was important for the powers that be to shut us down. And that's what happened. And unfortunately, uh, everything that we feared would happen without any intervention, without proper intervention has happened and still is going ongoing to this day. Yeah, it's been a living nightmare. Yes, indeed. And, uh, and I'll also add, so Judith Herman is well, renowned for trauma and recovery psychiatrist. She's somebody in my space. People really admire her. Robert J. Lifton wrote in this book, he's also someone that my listeners are familiar yes. with. He has another book coming out on resiliency of survivors, by the way, soon. Uh, Philip Zimbardo, another uh, expert, a uh, former president of the American Psych Psychological Association, contributed a chapter. So a lot of luminaries uh, uh, have weighed in on this. Absolutely. So, and and so I'm aware that the. Big Pharma and American Psychiatric Association were calling on the Goldwater Rule and telling media they can't have you on, but you're not a member of the American Psychiatric Association, and the Goldwater Rule has nothing to do with your duty to warn. And my duty to warn as an expert, warning, so please share with my listeners some of that. Backstory. Yes, absolutely. In fact, uh, the American Psychiatric Association just came out aggressively beyond anything that we thought it would do. If anything, it should have led the way in terms of our professional obligation to protect society because its own ethics guidelines say that we have uh, responsibility to patients as well as society. In the very first couple lines of its preamble, that's what it says. And yet, right. with the Trump era, it changed the Goldwater Rule. That's what people don't recognize as readily, that they not only affirm this rule that actually nobody paid attention to before Donald Trump, uh, it was considered outdated when it went into the books in 1973. Since 1980, we have not been uh, diagnosing by personal interview alone and um, have paid much more attention to objective behavior and patterns of behavior over time. So even diagnosis does not depend on a personal exam, but especially what we were speaking about, dangerousness or unfitness. These evaluations are not done 
uh, don't rely so much on a personal interview. In fact, for the most dangerous personalities, uh, a personal interview is considered the least informative and, in fact, some, some take away from the accuracy of the assessment. And that's actually an obligation to society because whether or not right. an elected official is fit or dangerous is important for the public to know, not for the person you might yep. take in as a patient who there is no patient in this context. Right. And there's no psychological evaluation for anyone running for public office. So now we have Congress people and senators with AR-15s on their Christmas card greetings, yes. spousing QAnon and other kinds of nuts, not so psychotic things. In fact, recently I read, you know, you have a, is it a Substack um, uh, uh, messaging about a mass psychosis is what's occurring where people are just not even listening to Trump's own people who said, the election was fair and square. They're in a in a psychotic bubble. Yes. Uh, so talk about that. Well, please. we've been warning since the very beginning that uh, if Donald Trump were not properly intervened with, his psychological dangers will then translate into social, cultural, geopolitical, and civic dangers. And that's exactly what has happened. I've started to call it the Trump contagion so that people can recognize what the source of this is and what the solution would be. Uh, this is not mm -hmm. normal for the culture, certainly. And right. uh, accepting it as normal, uh, framing it as normal, or simply a different political stance or everyday ideological discourse, which is, of course, what the Trump camp wants, but that's not reality. The reality is that there is a distinction between healthy ideology and thoughts that might be espoused because of uh, mental disorder or defect and um, because of pathology. Mm -hmm. And those are the kinds that we need yeah. to be uh, alert about because they can quickly bring a society down a death spiral. And so I've been critical of the media, and you just touched on something that I would like you to expound on, because I have a large followership in the media. Uh, talk to them, like, what's wrong with equivocating what Trump is doing with what Biden is doing, for example? Well, I have often compared the Trump contagion to... Uh, like the COVID pandemic, you wouldn't say that a COVID infection is the same as just any other health condition uh, or someone's right. uh, bodily state. In fact, uh, one becomes very impaired and because of the infectiousness of it, it, it becomes very dangerous for the population. And, uh, and whatever state they're in, it would not be the state they would choose to be in if they had optimal health. And that's what we see also with the mental health pandemic, which is what I've called it. Um, and I've also said that controlling the mental health pandemic is the first step to controlling the viral pandemic. Of course, that didn't happen. And see how uh, the mm -hmm. death rate in the United States was the highest in 
absolute highest in the world in terms of numbers and, and the highest in terms of per uh, 100,000 population in the industrialized world because we did not follow public health measures, which could have even contained it entirely, um, I would argue. Yeah, they were saying it was a hoax. They were saying that it's uh, that ivermectin is better than a vaccination and all kinds of, you know, bizarre, crazy stuff. And RFK is continuing yes. uh, to say crazy, anti-science, anti-medicine. So very similarly, uh, the Trump contagion itself yeah. uh, has to be uh, contained very quickly or it can spread in almost uncontrollable ways in ways that we cannot counter by rational discourse or uh, through right. through politics as usual. I warned that the 2020 election alone would not contain Donald Trump. And indeed, uh, his defeat certainly did not contain him. Right. Yeah, I actually warned at the end of the cult of Trump that if he didn't win there would be violence, and I cited Jim Jones. What look what happened when Congressman Ryan yes, confronted absolutely. Jones, and Jones realized he had no future. He took a lot of people down, and that's a, a, another topic I wanted to ask you about because Trump's rhetoric is increasingly revenge and violence, and uh, I, I know my former cult has an AR-15 gun factory and a cult worshiping AR-15s and two training compounds. So I'm really worried that they're going to go out and do violence against perceived enemies. Please, what do you think and what do we do? Yes, absolutely. What can the we do? The longer that we've allowed this to go on without, again, proper mental health uh, intervention, uh, the more dangerous it has gotten. In fact, we have entered the most hmm. dangerous period yet. Um, because uh, the, the uh, delusions, the um, fixed false beliefs, the paranoia, the vengeance-seeking um, uh, behavior and uh, violence-proneness, all, all these uh, aspects have only increased uh, because of Donald Trump's right. exposure, continued exposure to the public, and that has not stopped. That's where mental health expertise would have been ex enormously helpful because just about in every other circumstance, courts, prisons, and law enforcement do consult with us on how to handle dangerous mm -hmm. individuals, how to contain them, when to release them out into the public. And um, there's, uh, uh, whereas the legal system is involved with um, providing just punishment, uh, mental health experts mm -hmm. are involved with containing dangerousness and protecting the public. And this has not been mm. done in ways that uh, has has developed in a, into a calamity, frankly. And we that's why we are at such a peril in terms of our democracy as well as our nation's security and survival. Right. And as I realized when I was writing and researching the cult of Trump, there are many authoritarian religious cults in the cult of Trump and people are following their leader, whether it's Scientology, the Moonies or New Apostolic Reformation groups or Opus Dei. 
And so the religious freedom smoke cloud, you know, makes a hands off. It's people's religious belief that Donald Trump won the 2020 election. And for me and for Christians who know the Bible, they're like, you're misquoting Jesus and the Bible, please. And but but the IRS decides who's a legitimate religion and who isn't. And it's part of the confusion that creates, I think, that susceptible state where these uh, certainty, you know, narcissists who are so, you know, uh, effective at using words and deflecting and projecting and and distorting and pathologically lying. Well, they're effective at exploiting the vulnerability, the psychological vulnerabilities of the population. And somehow mm. we have allowed pathology to be used as a political weapon to uh, for winning elections and for advancing uh, agendas that would otherwise be unpopular or that the population would recognize as being self-destructive. Right. So I'm going to ask you, okay, the Biden administration's listening right now. What do they do? What, in your opinion, I have my thoughts about public health, declaring a public health emergency and doing research and inoculation programs, PSAs on mind control and how to discern a legitimate source of information and how to to trust science and what the scientific method actually is and how to be a good citizen. And, you know, I, I, that's my thoughts, but please share some of your thoughts. The Bidens are listening, fingers crossed, somebody in their administration's listening. Well, of course he could have done a lot when he uh, came into the presidency to recalibrate and bring us back to uh, reasonableness and, uh, and, just uh, norms. Well, I think he's done a lot, uh, yes. actually. He has, he has. And in fact, um, he has done certain things far beyond any presidency. Um, but as far as mental health is concerned, uh, I have to say he has skirted the topic and he has not mm. brought the kind of attention that the uh, that the lessons of the Trump presidency should have brought, such as to strengthen the 25th Amendment, for example, when uh, early on uh, there was a lot of discussion of the 25th Amendment. And in fact, I was invited and my colleagues were invited to speak with more than 50 Congress members who said that if we were able to educate the public on the medical aspects, then they would be able to act politically. And uh, even the drafter mm -hmm. of the 25th Amendment himself, John Ferrick, said that he meant the amendment to uh, be driven by medical data, not by politics. And Explain to my listeners what it is, because I'm not sure everybody knows what the 25th Amendment says. Yes, the 25th Amendment was uh, an amendment that was added in the 1960s to... Um, to clarify succession of presidency. But it has a clause in there mm -hmm. that if uh, a president, for whatever reasons, physical or mental, it becomes unable to discharge his duties of office, his or her duties of office, then um, the uh, 
basically the cabinet and the vice president would step in and uh, and even uh, involuntarily remove him uh, for uh, for there to be um, executive capacity, uh, mental capacity in the executive office. Uh, but what is not uh, spoken about is that this should be data-driven and driven by medical data when pertinent and mental health data when pertinent, uh, that it should be based in reality. But instead, it was turned into a purely political exercise that the vice president would drive, whereas, in fact, uh, uh, John Ferrick uh, clarified in many of his workshops and in the conferences that we uh, spoke mm -hmm. in together that the vice president was meant to come in last. So in order to uh, improve the viability of the 25th Amendment, Jamie Raskin and other representatives had put in a bill uh, that would kind of build in uh, medical professionals into this this body that would decide. And bipartisan medical professionals. Yes. So there's no uh, accusation that there's right. partisanship, that it's really based on clinical data and specific yes. things. But I guess for me as the, the, the non-politically uh, educated really or savvy person, it seems to me if the president picks the cabinet, and the vice president, isn't there a conflict of interest? Like, shouldn't there be some mechanism where Congress or Senate should vote and call exactly. upon a medical evaluation? And that is the other body that the bill would have supported. Exactly. Ah. So there. Yeah, that makes absolutely. sense. Absolutely. It was a viable avenue and actually a, a just avenue that was turned um, uh, inoperable partly because mental health professionals were silenced. And, uh, and, I, and I and my colleagues have also told uh, the then speaker, Nancy Pelosi, that uh, she needed to have mental health expertise or even to c consult with us in private to be able to be mm -hmm. successful in her impeachments. She mm -hmm. did not do that. And as a result, both impeachments did not go any further than uh, than the House of Representatives and and uh, and also prosecution. We had advised that um, that that this should be carried out in a way that takes into account mental health acts aspects, so that Donald Trump cannot turn in into uh, a purely political exercise and and uh, make it ineffective. Uh, and also the COVID pandemic management. As I said, uh, we had right. advised that because that presidency was overwhelmingly more of a mental health emergency than anything else, that uh, mental health expertise would be helpful. Um, but of course, it's hard to do when the public is not informed. And um, there was a time uh, shortly after our book was out, actually, uh, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump was an unprecedented New York Times bestseller of its kind. And thank you. And within three months of its publication. No, it's a great, it very, you did two volumes. The first had 27, <laughs> you added 10 more. Right. Yes. I, I even flew to DC for the press conference that you were doing for this yes, book absolutely. at the press club in DC. And uh, within three months of the book 
being released, uh, it, we were the number one topic of national conversation. And all major news media, uh, cable and network were inviting me. I was actually impressed at that time that there was no reticence whatsoever of this being uh, of, about mental health. It was only after right. the American Psychiatric Association very deliberately and aggressively uh, campaigned against us that suddenly speaking about the mental health uh, aspects of this crisis was ta became taboo and uh, they framed it as uh, creating a stigma against uh, those with mental illness, whereas in fact, all the literature shows that silence promotes stigma, not discussion. Yeah. And so yeah, here we are, exactly. where we're even further backward than we were in 2017 when the book first was first released and mental health experts mm -hmm. are entirely um, blacked out of uh, the major media and uh, networks and uh, even radio programs are afraid to have any of us on. The New York Times deletes my quotes if I were ever interviewed, whenever I'm interviewed. Uh, the Mine, Me too, unfortunately. Uh, most recently, NPR canceled two of my shows, both uh, on All Things Considered and another one here and now that was already recorded and uh, canceled at last minute. And so this is very worrisome because if we cannot talk about the problem, it doesn't make the problem go away. It makes it fester and uh, actually propagate unchecked and, uh, and it does not bode well for the country and the world. Yeah, so I have a theory, Bandy, at least from my work on cults, that it's actually cult members who've reached very high levels in corporate media that are that are censoring. And I say this first from firsthand knowledge with the Boston Globe, my hometown paper, which, you know, I've been here since the 70s, and they would quote me every time there was a cult story. And then there was a 10-year period where there was no cult stories. And if there was, it was a sect, S-E-C-T, and um, a friend of mine who was a writer for the Boston Globe said, you know, the editor is Opus Dei. Mm. And I'm like, oh, the Catholic group that says the Pope is satanic and that the, the extremist Catholic bishops that are trying to split, you know, the, 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 the followers and move them all to the right wing. Oh, and William Barr was Opus Dei. He was on the and and when my book came out, the PR person said, you know, if Steve thinks he's going to get in the media, calling the Attorney General of the United States a member of a cult, like forget it. Yes, and as you know, you know and Barr is back in the media, but it's not just Opus Dei. I think the Mormons, uh, the the there are so many Scientologists. Uh, have people in it. So the question is about infiltration to co-opt the public knowledge about something that's so obvious to all of us that this is like propaganda, disinformation, but a very specialized form. Yes, indeed. And, and if these dangerous personalities were called out or if the public were informed about how these 
personalities operate and how they use psychological means to, in fact, uh, reform their thoughts and, and control right. uh, through, uh, through control of information, then, then their power positions become endangered. And so, uh, as you know, I, my background comes from working with violent offenders and street gangs and prisons, um, uh, uh, the prison population. What has alarmed me over the years, over the last 25 years that I've been in practice, is that the dangerous personalities that, I, that, were, that used to be confined in jails and prisons are increasingly taking up leadership positions in society. That means that we as a democratic society are not uh, containing them well. And in fact, they are being allowed to take over in ways that would, uh, in fact, uh, diminish and undermine democracy. And that's exactly what is happening. Uh, they first started taking over corporate positions, more and more CEOs mm. would uh, have these uh, dangerous personality traits. And now uh, mm -hmm. uh, in the judicial and legal system, and now in politics. Mm -hmm. Talk about the traits. I mean, I, I reference Fromm's malignant narcissism, which isn't in the DSM. But talk about what, what you look for as a forensic psychiatrist of these dangerous personality traits. Yes, of course, malignant narcissism is kind of at the interface between pathological narcissism and sociopathy or psychopathy. And uh, mm -hmm. many of the individuals I've dealt with uh, have had these features, pathological narcissism and sociopathy. I've repeatedly said that sociopathy is a societal disorder more than an individual disorder in that mm -hmm. uh, it's vulnerable individuals who manifest this, uh, but societal mm -hmm. conditions create them. They are uh, mm -hmm. damaging individuals who violate other people's rights, who uh, have no uh, empathy or compassion for other human beings, and who are driven to harm. And uh, so these imagine a society being run by these individuals. Well, we have seen what happens to societies. It happened with Joseph Stalin, with Adolf Hitler, with uh, Mao Zedong. Right. So uh, we know what dangers we are in. But I don't feel that the public truly appreciates because they have not been exposed to such personalities at wide scale. Uh, they do not deal right. with uh, such uh, defects and such levels of malevolence. Uh, that we do as mental health professionals at times, and especially right or historians who studied these dictators and criminal yes. types, etc. Et I just want to name things like, in addition to lack of empathy, they think they're above the law, so the ends justify the means, and they pathologically lie, and they have tra sadistic traits and paranoid traits, and they threaten revenge and silencing and inability to trust. So just to flesh out, these are identifiable things by how people talk and, and, and through a history of interactions with people that who say, oh yeah, he's totally transactional. It's all about him. He'll lie and say he'll take care of you and then he won't pay his bills for, cent for decades. <laughs> but people 
get tricked because of the charm initially and they don't do their homework and research that this is a personality disorder. And oftentimes it's beyond right? the ordinary person's imagination that someone could be so uh, ill-intentioned and so out to harm and derive pleasure from harming others. Uh, that's usually yes. uh, inconceivable to most of us with normal, uh, normal mental makeup. Yeah, I think that's so important. The average nice person can't imagine what's going on in the mind of one of these people. But we can because we've dealt with them on and on and on. And it becomes, oh, stereotypical, you know, cult leader profile here. The Surgeon General put out a report about young people on the internet with record levels of anxiety, depression, eating disorders, body dysmorphia. And so we're talking about, you know, the president putting more attention to mental health. We have the Surgeon General with this report, but it seems like a very important moment where we should be connecting the dots with online behavior and this radicalization and keeping people in these rabbit holes of authoritarianism. So I don't want to give up on trying to get a public health initiative uh, effort if anyone from the Biden administration is listening for some practical steps. And it might involve just a, a getting a meeting of top professionals together like yourself with officials in the administration and mapping out how do we depolarize America? How do we, what, what are the mental health steps we could be taking that's within our power to do that's actually gonna lower the depression, the anxiety, the pills, the, you know, the alcohol and drug taking behavior and get people to feel hope again that we can get out of this mess. So I just wanted you to comment and try to, because yeah, I'm sure you're aware of online uh, malevolent practices that are happening to our people. Yes, certainly. There is a mental health crisis as never before in this country, uh, it seems, and that uh, a large proportion of young people have thought about suicide, have uh, attempted suicide. Uh, there's, there's an opioid crisis that is ongoing. And the U.S. is um, the only country among the industrialized nations that is going down in uh, life expectancy. And that is thought to be because of deaths of despair and uh, suicides, drug overdoses, and, um, and certainly youth suicide is going up dramatically. Um, I, uh, I agree with you in that there is a large component of um, the, the social media, addiction, isolation, and lack of meaningful social contact, uh, and, and mm -hmm. of course, exacerbated by the pandemic. The pandemic, of course, became a lot worse because of Donald Trump's mismanagement. Isolated yes. us. Sure. And um, so uh, a large contributor to this, I would still go back to the Trump contagion um, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and our inability to draw us out from this or address it in, uh, in a just manner. Why aren't mental health professionals being invited 
to all different news media to speak about the general mental health crisis, if not about Donald Trump. Again, it goes back to the intervention that the American Psychiatric Association made that somehow signaled to all the media that mental health experts are not to be shown in public. And, um, hmm. uh, and, and it is affecting our uh, general mental health uh, and our right. collective suicidal tendency, I have said, uh, in that right. we are currently in a, a really a public mental health emergency. And yeah. uh, and humanity's survival is at stake in terms of what we yes. are willing to accept in terms of nuclear danger. We still do not have a mental fitness test for commanders-in-chief when all other military officers who deal with nuclear weapons are required to undergo rigorous psychological testing before they... Oh, great point. Yes. Yearly evaluations if you're going to be on a nuclear sub. Yes. And yet the commander-in-chief doesn't need a, a, a psych eval? And even after the Trump presidency, where we had a dangerous personality, and we know for a fact that multiple times he came very close to using nuclear weapons, and uh, General John Kelly, actually, it was reported that he, uh, he secretly bought our book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, used it as an yeah. owner's manual for how to deal with uh, Donald Trump's... Mm. Uh, abnormal psychology and his dangerousness and that might have prevented right. a nuclear war against North Korea uh, and also climate destruction. This year was the hottest mm. on record by multiple right. orders of uh, uh, magnitude and yet we are right. not taking the steps that are necessary for our survival as a species and this is uh, this goes far beyond politics. It is a mental health issue, a medical issue, and an urgent issue of our survival. So, And that's where your expertise as a medical doctor who's a psychiatrist, who knows the law and, 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 and knows the, how, how to forensically evaluate uh, people's conditions is, in my mind, critical to bridge things like the Surgeon General saying we know this that that young people are being malevolently affected on the internet yes. and mental health. I'm just a mental health person. I'm not an MD, but you're the you know you have the creds and your your friends and other people who've written this book. So, well, you bring valuable um, knowledge that uh, that few of us have sure. in terms of the study. Well, I, I do my best. Yes. Then. But thank you so much for your support always. So now I'm, I want to shift to a different frame about another area of the law that is got a, a huge need to be reformed. You and I have talked about family law and the family courts, I should say. And, and, and uh, you asked me if you could speak about some of the things you've been learning there. So please share. Yes, thank you what for do you, that. What do we need to know? I, sure, of course. I believe it's relevant here because 
family courts are, uh, to, to my great astonishment, uh, my 25 years of serving as an expert witness for criminal and civil courts did not prepare me for what I discovered in the family courts. Uh, essentially, mm. um, family courts are uh, a microcosm of authoritarianism in that they operate in mm. secrecy. Uh, we think of family courts as being courts of law, but in fact, uh, they are not, they're the only court not bound by the law because they're given mm. wide discretion, essentially given license to do anything, and it all happens in secrecy. So what is happening in family courts is that violent individuals are allowed full reign, uh, especially when um, couples are divorcing and families are splitting up. Instead of protecting the families, uh, they are essentially, uh, as we know, domestic violence is very prevalent. And uh, domestic violence often uh, signals and portends uh, more widespread or general violence. And uh, and so there's a lot of family violence that goes on, and many of these cases present to family court. What's been happening is that especially children have been uh, transferred to the violent uh, parent, usually, and away from the safe and protective parent to the point where hundreds of children are dying per year. I've been calling it uh, various things, a hidden genocide, um, because a certain type of people are being targeted in courts and um, and to their to their harm and death. And you would think that something of this magnitude would be known throughout society, uh, but it's kept under strict secrecy um, through gag orders and through such sudden trauma that uh, that those who are engaged in 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 these rulings uh, cannot gather themselves to speak up. Um, recently, the UN Special Rapporteur gave uh, a report on this crisis. It started in the United States, and family courts are the one unregulated, totally unaccountable court in the United States that has been practicing. Who knew? Yes. I didn't know this. So these are not federal courts or state courts? They are they are and state. how do the judges get appointed? They're they're usually county courts. Uh judges can I be see. appointed or elected. But um family law is considered kind of uh the law that people are the last resort of where you wish to go as a judge. And so um hmm. uh, so the quality of the judges is uh, has uh, is generally low, but they are also given uh just complete control. It's their their own little fiefdom where they get to control and uh and determine what happens. And there, there are signs that many dangerous personalities are actually entering family law. And just as we have seen with the Trump administration that was specifically targeting uh, parent-child and adult-child bonds at the U.S.-Mexican border and separating them, uh, yeah. family courts are separating uh, the type 
usually mother-child bonds, but also father-child bonds, whatever uh, is working or um, is good. Whenever there are allegations of abuse, the children are sent to the abusing parent. And the safe and protective parent is kept away from the child, kept on protective orders, uh, can only uh, see the child through supervised visitation, or uh, they often go to jail because uh, of their trying to protect the child. So I'm guessing that the abuser is wealthy and affords a expensive lawyer or somehow buys off the judge? Yes. Am I, am I assuming incorrectly? Because that's what makes sense to me why... I mean, otherwise, usually my, my, what makes sense is that you have guardian ad litems that interview the kids and both parents and make reasonable assessments so the judge can do what's best for the child and not what's best for a, a particular parent, unless, as you say, there's authoritarianism and justice is being subverted. And it is functioning as a, as a mini cult in the sense that hmm. uh, they advance a false narrative that the safe parent is actually, uh, or uh, the abusing parent is a good parent. And if the children act up and don't wish to go to that parent, uh, the safe parent is a parental alienator. And that oh is boy. actually used to overturn any uh, abuse accusation. And in fact, uh, there are some studies that show that 98% of accusations of abuse are disbelieved in family court, whereas 0.1% uh, are actually false accusations. So, so imagine that reversal. Uh, so just about all accusations are disbelieved and turned around, and because they control whatever happens, they appoint the guardian ad guardians ad litem who will... Uh, confirm and advance the, the judge's preferred narrative. And uh, even experts are, there's a cottage industry that has arisen around this where mm. experts also determine that uh, the, the safe parent is an alienating parent uh, in order to effectuate what the abuser wishes to do, which is to predatorily alienate uh, the safe parent from the child. So um, I did not believe that this world existed and uh, never knew about family courts because uh, I, as a fully trained forensic psychiatrist, would not be qualified in family court. Most of them don't even have doctorates. And uh, the experts don't have doctors, and if they do, they're usually psychologists, and uh, and the mm -hmm. amount that they charge for their predetermined evaluations is astronomical. They charge ten mm. to twenty times. I've even seen a hundred times my regular fees, and so this is a secret world. So this world. is expert witnesses for money, and has nothing to do with actually caring about the children yes. and doing what's best for the children. But I know Bill Bernay and I know other psychiatrists who've worked in the parental alienation world. There are, there are you know, psychologically valid instruments for evaluating 
who's the alienated parent yes. or not. So it's not, it's, there's science here that can be used, but you're saying that the corruption is so widespread that, that it can't yes. get in there because of uh, this cottage industry. What do we do to fix it other than try to shine a light on it? Maybe someone listening to this in the media would like to try to do a an invest investigative you know, report or a documentary on this or something. Yes, and I, I, I wish to call attention to this issue because while I was speaking up about Trump, um, many members of the public uh, kept contacting me, asking me, please look into family courts, please uh, pay attention mm. to this issue. And and I, I was never interested in family court because I assumed that these are family conflicts that the courts are resolving and I deal with mass murderers or uh, serial rapists right. and I, uh, the most dangerous individual society produces. But I did not know that courts themselves are essentially corrupt to the point of, well, I say that uh, many people who are in this area have tried to educate the judges to reform the courts. And I say against a $50 billion per year industry, there would be very wow. little we could do by educating. And uh, the only reason I became aware of this was when my sister uh, was undergoing mm. a divorce. I imagine she was just going through an ordinary divorce. But uh, but her husband, who was absentee father before, uh, before the divorce, suddenly paid attention to the children and wanted to have the children. Of course, he was abusive. He actually nearly killed uh, each of his two oh, children boy. on two separate occasions and, uh, and injured them almost with every uh, session with them. And so the children didn't wish to go with him. And he was on a restraining order. Uh, eventually, uh, the children wanted to try to burn the house down, not to go to him. And then... Wow. Uh, family court intervened and negated the temporary restraining order, sent the children to him, uh, even as they were having panic attacks. If they locked themselves in their rooms and didn't wish to go, the police escorted them. And uh, so to make a long story short, they were transferred to the sole custody of the father. And uh, my sister has not seen her kids for two years. I thought this oh my was, God. Uh, and they were only seven and nine at the time. So oh, that's child abuse. Imagine the developmental trauma and the lifelong psychological problems they will have, psychological, medical problems, a uh, couple decades of loss of life expectancy that comes with this kind of right. trauma. And yet family courts are doing this routinely. I found out that my sister's case is by far not the worst case, uh, that this is actually happening <sighs> almost like a formula. Um, yeah. Since then, I've picked up about a dozen family court cases, and uh, they are all each worse, one worse than the other. It's so widespread, and so many deaths are happening at a scale that we would, uh, I mean, similarly, to the Nazi Holocaust, much was happening without <laughs> the awareness of the public. And if this... Oh, the children were taken to Nazi camps. Yes, exactly. And then the kids were programmed against their parents exactly. if and they that's weren't what's good happening. Nazi supporters. That's happening in reunification Horrible. camps. 
They are camps that are set up by unlicensed uh, uh, so-called professionals who take children who are resisting their abusive parent. They separate them from the safe and protective parent, uh, imprison them essentially with the, with the abusive parent and force them into uh, have them undergo starvation, uh, torment them to the point Amazing. of Amazing. This is America. Yes. This is America. And uh, I, I, I just want to say, you know, I learned about parental alienation back in the 70s when I got out of the Moonies, because when you're in a mind control cult, if you're married and have kids and one of the parents wants to leave, the parents are made to program the kids to think that the, the leaving parent is evil. That's right. And, and does everything possible to have custody to keep control over this. So this is happening around the globe, but it was, it was about 20 years ago, I started learning about non-religious cults, just the narcissistic parent right. doing this, brainwashing the children, so I've had a number of interviews on my website about parental alienation, but this family court piece is new, new information and they use, for me. And they, they abuse the phrase parental alienation in order to engage in predatory alienation. In other words, they, they oh. apply the phrase parental alienation where it doesn't apply and uh, basically to label anybody as an alienator so as to send the children where they wish to. And when they send the children to the wrong parent, of course, all these uh, experts get involved and, and a whole lot of people make a lot of money. And, um, mm. and I spoke with William Bernay as well. Uh, I, my suggestion uh. to him was that he used psychological violence, not just parental alienation, because it's too mild a phrase for what actually happens. And it's usually the... Uh, the otherwise abusing parent who is also doing the parental alienation, not the safe uh, protective parent with no history who yeah, raised so the children uh, themselves and did so successfully. And we come full circle to the cult of Trump because that's the psychological warfare technique to project onto the other yes. that which you are doing, deflect attention, take the words and twist them for their purposes, for pro propaganda purposes. Yes. So it's really uh, a form, uh, uh, another um, location or application of psychological warfare aimed at creating chaos and breaking up families and, and, and causing trauma. Because this whole thing is unbelievably traumatizing, not just for the parent that's being alienated, but the the brothers, the sisters, the grandparents, and everyone else. Oh, and the children uh, who, are, uh, who are abruptly yeah. extracted from their loving parent, right. pro other primary supports, their uh, nurturing home environment, and, and sent to their abuser of all things. It's, it's uh, the worst kind of child abuse you can imagine, and the worst trauma, because to experience the abuse while you're separated from your primary supports, uh, of course, is, is the worst conditions, right. uh, worst kind of conditions. Exactly. I interviewed Dana Lacquadera, who was alienated from her mother at age four mm -hmm. uh, by the father. Um, and um, she and her sister waited till they're in their early 20s to track down the mother to hear the other side. Yes. 
but they weren't just alienated from her. It was all of the mother's side of the family who they loved and wanted to have contact with. But the father, who then remarried, and the stepmother enforced that they have to call her mother. It was just, and so anyway, she wrote a a memoir about it as an alienated child and just how horrible it was. Yes, yes. And I'm... How wrong it was. um, I'm actually writing a book on this issue. It's called The Dangerous Case of Family Courts. And for it, I'm interviewing children of of the family court system, uh, child victims. Great. uh, Parent victims. Great. Do you have a publisher here? Uh, not yet. Or you just were, not yet. Well, we we I want to help uh, and let and, and please speak at the forensic think tank that you've done uh, numerous talks for that I'm involved with at Harvard Medical School because I think we need to uh, alert more more experts more medical experts on this. So coming back full circle. Mental health professionals have a duty to warn, and it's about caring about the public, putting their needs at a very high level, and realizing that the powers that be should be doing far more to utilize mental health experts who are bipartisan, so there can't be any you know, notion that there's an agenda there, but really based on science and evidence to teach the public what's healthy and what's not healthy. <laughs> Who are the predators that you should be uh, careful not to go out on date, blind dates with on Tinder or whatever? <laughs> you know, like, please, this is out there. And to never keep secrets. If somebody says, don't tell your parents or don't tell your family, about us, they wouldn't understand, go and tell them immediately. <laughs> it means that they're trying to do information control, right? And mind control. And this is uh, on you. expertise is, uh, belongs to the public. Our societal role yes. is to share our, the best available knowledge in our fields with the public. Right. And a democracy means that the public has as- access to this knowledge to be able to make informed decisions, uh, whether it's um, uh, professionals, intellectuals, or journalists who provide knowledge and uh, information and facts. Um, This is critical for a democracy to be able to work. Yeah, absolutely. So as we're wrapping up, tell us about the World Mental Health Coalition, what your hope is for that. We can mentioned that you believe freedom of mind is an important human right for all uh, and how people can contact you and get involved and support your good work through the coalition if they're mental health professionals uh, or sign up for your your substack because you're writing about what's going on from your point of view. So as we wrap up, tell us a little bit more about your work. Yes, absolutely. Uh, the World Mental Health Coalition, which formed in late 2017 and uh, consists of, at one point, we were several thousand mental health professionals uh, concerned about societal mental health. And uh, as you know, your um, freedom of mind also uh, inspired us to put out a declaration of the freedom of mind 
um, which people can simply Google and look up. But all the right. uh, links, the links to my newsletter as well as to the World Mental Health Coalition are in my on my website, bandylee.com. That's B-A-N-D-Y-L-E-E.com. And uh, and also you can follow me on Twitter, BandyXLee1, uh, where I give periodic... Yeah, go to your website and you have the links there and we're going to write a blog and we'll embed the video for those who are listening if you want to see Bandy as she's describing these important topics. And I'll just hold up a book that people should still read if they want to understand what the hell's going on right now with so many millions of Americans and the GOP and realize there is a path out of this, but we need to use our, our, uh, our smarts and our expertise and work together for the common good. We have to. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and thank you for bringing yeah. attention to this issue, Dr. Hassan. Yeah, and thank you for your good work, and thank you for your support in the Cult of Trump book uh, as well. So, um, Mutual Admiration Society. So I hope to wish you good luck, and I definitely want to help, if I can, with the family court um, uh, cult. It sounds yes. like authoritarian cult system. It's about power money and maybe sex, but it's always but for oh, sure yes. power and money. Sexual abuse yeah. is, is very big in the family courts, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, so, um, so stay in touch and thank you again so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast is by Nasser Malik. To keep up to date with me and happenings that I think are important, please visit my website at freedomofmind.com. There you'll find in-depth articles about cults, mind control, and other relevant topics. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you grasp the complex web of undue influence. I have also launched a new nine-hour online course for anyone interested in a deep dive into issues related to recovering from undue influence in all forms. While this course is designed for clinicians, everyone can benefit. If you're a former member, I congratulate you for your bravery and invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT and join our online community at igotout.org. Remember, love is stronger than mind control. And thanks for listening.